0: Patrick DeWitt has been described as the great chronicler of American weirdos. His first novel drew on his experiences as a bartender, Ablutions it was called. The Sisters Brothers was an idiosyncratic take on the cowboy story. Under Major Domo was a gothic fairy tale for grown-ups. French Exit which you may have seen the movie of with Michelle Pfeiffer, was a sweet story of a makeshift family in Paris, and The Sisters Brothers is also a movie, I think. Pleasingly bonkers is one phrase applied to DeWitt's writing. Funny and sad. And now comes this latest story, A Quieter Tale, about a chap called Bob Comet, the librarianess. I asked Patrick DeWitt to tell me about Bob.
1: He's uh, he's in his early 70s. He's a retired librarian. He's not dissatisfied with his life, which is quite sort of off to the side. He's very isolated and doesn't have much of a social calendar. He's not unhappy in spite of this, but there is something missing, and there is some... um, you know, we, we, we sort of want to find out why he is the man he is now, how he came to be this, this solitary creature. So the book is just the unraveling of that story, sort of pulling away at the thread from the start and seeing where it takes us. And it takes us to his early years as a librarian in the 1950s and then further back into the 1940s when he ran away from home towards the final days of the Second World War. So it's a full scope portrait of one man. Um, but in the end, we return to him as a senior. And uh, he's found a position among some of his peers in his neighborhood.
0: Should we so, conclude from this, Patrick, that no one is entirely boring? Everybody's got a story.
1: Between you and me, I think some people are truly boring. <laughs> I but think so too. I, do. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that Bob is. He's being described as boring sometimes sort of um, in, in, in as nice a way as, as, as such a thing can be said by which I think it is meant that he's not particularly gregarious. He's a uh, sort of inward thinking and inward living, somebody who is, devotes most of his spare time to reading, um, which doesn't make for fireworks, particularly in terms of a narrative. But um, I think the stories that lead up to, you know, again, the full-scope portrait of the man are fascinating, or they are to me. I hope that they are to the reader as well.
0: There's a bit where he's in conversation with his well-friend Ethan, and Ethan says, I suppose you're a fiend for books. And Bob says, I suppose I am. Ethan says, I keep meaning to get to books, but life distracts me. And Bob says, see, for me, it's just the opposite.
1: Yeah, yeah. I can actually relate to Bob's sentiment there. Yeah. Um, you know.
0: Were you like that I as think... a kid? Were you in a corner reading as a kid?
1: I think I was both things. And actually, the Ethan-Bob sort of dichotomy is, is a fascinating one for me in that I, I can I can relate to both of those characters Ethan is a bit of a um, adventuresome uh, caddish type and then Bob is, is is very much the introvert and uh, uh, um, wants to stay home and read sort of a person and both of those make sense to me both of those ways of life make sense to me I, I I did take to reading in a way that I think was abnormal as a young person but that came I read in a sort of traditional sense when I was you know Nine, ten, eleven was once I hit puberty and I started reading um, beatnik books and things like that, it made sense to me in a way that I think was, looking back, probably a little bit strange. Certainly not the norm among my peer group.
0: You've been described as an autodidact, which means you didn't go to any creative writing course. Life gave you what you needed to know. Is that true? I
1: don't know if I'd put it quite that way, but I never did study literature uh, and I never did go to college and I didn't quite graduate high school, though it was very close, very close. I knew what I wanted to do from the age of 16 or so, which was to write. And I I, I did think at the time that all you had to do to write was to read a lot and to go out and have adventures. So I, I did that, which is sort of almost cute in, in its uh, old fashionedness, but it's also a little bit sad. I was completely unaware of, you know, MFA programs and things like that. I probably would have enjoyed them, but it didn't occur to me.
0: Talking about cues, among the literary influences you cite um, was Ivy Compton-Burnett, who wrote novels about you know late Victorian Edwardian upper class English people. Um, Is that true?
1: I love Ivy Compton-Burnett. I think. Oh yeah, one of my great loves is um, you know dialogue, uh, pithy, witty, weird dialogue, and she's the queen. I mean, her books consist almost completely of uncredited dialogue, five people speaking, but none of the voices or very few of the voices are credited and you have to sort of figure it out. So it's slow going on the one hand, but if you give yourself to the experience of reading Ivy Compton Burnett, uh, I think she's just wonderful. Yeah. I've and, never and, read her,
0: uh, I must try her. Do you know, this is my yeah. new favourite thing, apart from the librarianist, of course, about a podcast called Backlisted?
1: Okay, I'm not familiar.
0: It's great. It's a couple of English bookish chaps talking about, and with guests, talking about old books or books that aren't famous by famous writers. And and they introduce you to all sorts, me, to all sorts yeah. of writers. I think, oh, my goodness, I must go and read that. And I'm sure that they will have devoted an episode to Ivy Compton Burnett because
1: she's right up their street, I reckon. Oh, that's good. I'll yeah. check it out. Yeah, 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 yeah. The, thing about Ivy, the thing about Ivy too is that it's all very, you know, it's posh people speaking about posh things, but there's always an undercurrent of desperate darkness. A lot of the books have to deal with incest and things like that, but it's approached in this way that's humorous in a sort of gallows humor sort of style. So it's more than one thing. It's quite a few things working at once. And she was just a brilliant, brilliant, uh, craftsperson, her her dialogue is, is bar none the best. That I, I can mean.
0: see why you like that because your books have all got something else going on.
1: Yeah, yeah. I seem to gravitate towards that as a reader, and it's only natural that that would seep into the work as well.
0: When you said you were a kind of a mix of the adventurous, caddish type and the bookish introvert, did you get your adventurous, caddish bit out of the way when you were, you know, Being about tender and writing ablutions, which, as far as I can understand, is sort of auto fiction about being drunk.
1: Yeah, be a gluttonous behavior. Yeah, I think I did get it out of my system so much as one can. Um, My life is pretty quiet these days, but there's always room for some adventure, right? I mean, you've got to make make some space for that. So what is your
0: chosen adventure?
1: Well, nowadays it's traveling around and and, and meeting a million people. After three and a half years sitting in my room alone (laughs) working on this new book, it's really nice to get out and mingle.
0: Ah, because that could go the other way. You could think, oh, my God, I just can't go out there. It terrifies me. I'm going to stay in my room, write another book.
1: Right. Well, that comes at the end of the tour, right? When the travel's all over, I'm really, really ready to get back to my room. But um, at the start, it's always so nice to, to just say hello to the world again.
0: Do you think that your writing is in a genre?
1: No. I've I've been told that my books are all sort of genre takes, that each one's a unique take on some sort so of existence. So it a, seems, existing.
0: yeah.
1: Yeah, and I, I, that may be so. It's not quite so. I, I, other than The Sisters Brothers, which I sat down and I thought, okay, I'm going to write a Western, you know, but the rest of them just sort of came out naturally and were just um, – symptomatic or whatever it was I was interested in the scenes that I wanted to see at that point in time I, I may be you know bound to genre in some sense but I almost have this feeling that it doesn't pay for me to inspect my own motives uh particularly closely it's probably wiser just to do the work and what comes comes because self-consciousness is not useful to me it's not to me it's not I mean, if I'm doing something wrong, I want to recognize it and 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 knock it out. But in terms of just the criteria for me when I sit down to work each day is, am I excited to work on this, or do, is it drudge work? And if it's drudge work, then perhaps something's gone amiss. But um, so long as I feel engaged with the text and the characters, then, so far as I'm concerned, I'm in business. You know.
0: How interesting that you thought you kn- you thought you would be a writer. You knew you would be a writer at such a young age. Your first book was a sort of a a humorous take on self-help, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, I don't know if we could call that a book. Maybe we could call it a zine. It was Perfect Bound, but it was something like 45 pages. Oh, okay. And I have a, you know, I have a, my older brother uh, had a publishing, you know, sort of indie publishing imprint at the time. And I was working on trying to sell Ablutions, my first novel. I had finished it, and I was wondering what to do next. And in the meantime, he said, well, why don't you just... If you wanna have an idea for a book, put it out, you know? And so I thought, okay, well what about a book of bad advice? And he said that sounds great. So I wrote that on the weekend. <laughs>
0: that sounds great, Patrick.
1: Yeah, go ahead. And so he encouraged me. It was really nice. It was sort of and it was nice too that my first publishing experience was such a modest one, you know. It was I remember being so thrilled when I, I, I sold fifty copies in Portland and that was just the best news to me. So um, when when
0: the Sisters brothers came out, you must have been blown away.
1: I didn't really know what to make of it. It wasn't something I'd anticipated. I had I had low expectations for that book. Not that I think it's a shabby book. I just didn't think that it would reach as many people as it did.
0: Why do you think it was such a hit? I'm not questioning that it should have been. I'm just wondering right, what your right. take
1: on it is. I don't know. When we come back to the issue of self-knowing uh, My- yourself, if, if I knew why, I, I might try to recreate it. I, I, I don't know. I think that the first-person voice, I think people primarily enjoyed spending time with, Eli sisters. And it was a first person voice. So it was quite a close friendship for the reader. Yeah. And he is sympathetic and empathetic. And he does have a couple of funny lines. And then also, it's a—I think it's a fascinating story. The gold rush in, in the United States of America in the middle 1850s was a strange place. So I think it was a bunch of different things working in my favor. But again, I, I didn't anticipate this at all.
0: You talk about the first person. I, I read that you first of all wrote the librarianist in the first person, and sent it off to the publisher, and then rewrote it.
1: Yeah, yeah. It just—it's it, something. Never. There was always a thing that was bothering me, and I couldn't really figure out what it was. And then one day I realized that Bob Comet, being as retiring a man as he is, would never say this much. He would never share this much. So I—I I thought I should change it. I, I didn't necessarily want to because the book was more or less done. I think we had copy edits left to do but it had been accepted by the publishers and everybody was pleased. And then I asked the editors, you know, what would you say to my going back in and changing it? And they wished me well, but, um, and then I, you know, of course I said the caveat was if I do it and it's worse, then we'll put it back to the way it was, you know, I'll save the draft in first person to the side. But I do think it's a stronger book for being in third person. It makes more sense to me emotionally that it would be a sort of omniscient narrator rather than Bob speaking so much.
0: I'm talking to Patrick DeWitt about his latest novel, The Librarianist, which not only features a septuagenarian called Bob Comet, a retired librarian, but also a rich cast of characters, as is Patrick DeWitt's won't. Do you think, Patrick, that you're good at American eccentrics or American weirdos, as somebody else put it, because as a Canadian you're looking at the United States as an outsider or an outsider, as you Canadians might say?
1: (laughs) um that probably has something to do with it i do recall because i moved back and forth from canada several times as a child and i remember each time i would, returning to canada was was easier for me than coming to to the states where things were on the surface similar you know but there were there were these subtle differences and it did take some getting used to it. and perhaps i've never fully gotten used to it i mean i've been here long enough i've been in the states rather long enough that um i can relate more but I, I think there may be something to what you're saying. I think that just having even the touch of the of the outsider is, is, is beneficial to understanding what's going on in the social dynamic.
0: You've taken US citizenship
1: now, haven't you? I've got dual now, yeah. Is there an interesting reason for that? Well, I had a green card for many years and I had an issue where I had a, a bit of a legal issue when I was a younger person and it sort of crept up to, to bother me in terms of, Every you time mean I you got busted or something? I got busted for something, yeah. And I, I kept getting put in secondary. Every time I would return to the United States, they'd put me in secondary and harass me, and I'd miss my flight. And the border patrol of any major border, generally speaking, are not fun people, and you don't want to spend time with them. <laughs> yeah. And I spent just a little bit too much time with these these men and women at the, at the U.S. border. And so I went to an law, immigration lawyer, and he said the only thing for it is to apply for citizenship, and you might not get it. Because of the kerfuffle,
0: because uh, of the <laughs> because of the record,
1: because of my record, yeah. Oh. So I went and I applied and I was denied, and then I went applied again, and then the second time they took me on. Wow! So it's just it's more a matter; it's not a question of patriotism or anything like that. It's just the logistics. I leave this I leave the country a lot, and it's important that I be able to come and go freely. So.
0: Yeah, yeah. How interesting that that you applied was refused and then applied again. You must have got just a different person, or did you? Plead your case very
1: well. No, no, I didn't do anything. And my lawyer wasn't much use either. We just sort of sent the documents in and then I sat there. And the first person that I met with was a grouch. And she just denied me and said, no way. And the next person that I met, and this was, there was a space of maybe six months between these two meetings. The second person was in a good mood and seemed very jolly and generally happier than the first person. And she said, this is ridiculous. Of course, you can become a citizen. Wow. So, yeah, it really does come down to the individual when you get bureaucracy, yeah, and luck too, yeah. Speaking of luck, you've got yes. a great
0: story of of how um, ablutions came about.
1: Yeah, well, I worked on the book when I was working at the bar, and um, it's not meant to be, as you say, autofiction, but there was a good bit of that bar in the book, I'm afraid, and, and, and certain of my behaviours too. Anyway, the book was in a rough draft state, and I didn't know what to do next, and I had no friends who were interested in, in, in literature and then who were writers, not really. And uh, I needed an agent. I recognized that, but it seemed very alien to me. How does one acquire one of these magical beings? And a man came through the bar one night who I knew was, he'd written a couple of scripts that had been turned into films, a gentleman named DVD Vincentis. And I knew he had an agent or a manager or somebody, one of those magical people in his corner. So without him knowing what I was doing, I began to give him drink after drink for free. And he's a good man anyway. I would have probably done this, you know, just because he's good company. But at the end of a long night of drinking, he and I, I mentioned casually, as casually as I could. Anyway. <laughs> by the way. Oh, yeah. By the way. Oh, I've written a book and it's about this novel. And I think that you should read it and tell me what you think of it. And he did. And he liked it. And um, he introduced me to the man who introduced me to the man that became my agent. And uh, this took all, all took place over weeks or months, even after I'd left the bar. But um, it was lucky, but it was also alcohol. You know, alcohol and luck coming together—that's a powerful force.
0: Yeah. Well, it we can, can live—we can live without alcohol, but we can't live without luck. Can Can we deduce that?
1: That's the truth. Good one. Uh,
0: are you living without alcohol now?
1: I am, actually. I had one drink. It's been years, but I had one drink the other night. There was a musician in Portland I love named Michael Hurley, and he was playing at this little dinky bar, and all my friends were there. It was a beautiful summer day, and I thought, I'd love a gin. And I got up, and I had a gin and ginger beer with lime in it, and it was delicious. No, wait. No, wait.
0: Gin and ginger beer?
1: Oh, yeah. yeah. This is entirely wrong. Is it? Have you tried it? No. Give it a whirl. All right. Is this a thing? When well, gin, yeah, you say gin, gin, gin and ginger, or you know, they give you ginger ale. But if they have ginger beer, then that's even better. Wow. And uh, mm. and so, uh, yeah, I had a gin and ginger with lime, and I drank it. And sorry, I, thought, I became I,
0: sidetracked from the riveting story of you falling off the wagon. Carry on.
1: Yeah. I just, <laughs> I just sort of—I didn't fall off the wagon. I just sort of touched my toe to the road, and then I picked it back up, and now I'm back on the wagon. Um, I did want a second drink, but I did not have one. I'm, I'm, I think I could drink casually at this point because I don't have that sort of demonic gluttonousness that I, that came with my youth and young adulthood. I'm just calmer generally. And my, my spirit is calmer, you know, like I, am not as anxious or, or, um, uh, the root of most addiction I, I find is sort of a, a desire to deaden unpleasant emotions. And most of those emotions have lifted. So I probably could casually drink, but I do find that I'm happier and I get more done and I'm healthier, obviously. Yeah. Without the drink. So perhaps it's wisest to steer clear. Yeah. Now.
0: I mean that's the thing that people don't really realise with the drinking is that it's a depressive.
1: Oh yeah. 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 Absolutely. I miss it. I miss it to tell you the truth. You know what I miss? I miss sitting in a bar and drinking with either even alone or with pals or whatever. That whole social aspect of it was really nice. Laughing over a drink with friends, but uh, I still have friends and we can drink coffee instead. So it's not quite as fun or as funny, but it's, it's, it'll do, you know, for now.
0: Um, You seem to have developed a relationship with John C. Riley in the movie World.
1: He was so good with uh, the adaptation of the Sisters Brothers yeah. and he and his, he and his wife and partner, uh, Allison, I think they spent eight years putting it together and they were just relentless and they saw it through to its end and, and, so he has my uh, my I, he's a, my vote. You know, he's 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 a good man and he was honorable. How interesting
0: that they were so devoted to it to bring the book to movie.
1: Yeah, I think you know John read it in rough draft through um, director friend mutual acquaintance uh Ozazel Jacobs, and me and Ozzie and John had worked together on a film called Terry. So Ozzie read Sisters Brothers in rough draft and he said you should give it to John because he might be interested in the character of Eli. And that's what it was. He read that char- he read the book, and he he acknowledged, you know, to himself that the the, the character of Eli was one that he wanted to play, and that he could relate to um, Eli's sentiments and and feelings. So, yeah. so that's what it was. It was rooted in something personal, I think, for him.
0: I mean, John C. I don't know whether I've ever seen John C. Riley play a bad guy. He's got such a benign countenance.
1: Yeah, yeah, but he's he's you know like all of us. He's quite a few different things. I think, it, it, you know, he he's so funny and so good at being funny and strange that he tends to be offered those sorts of jobs. But I think he, his talents are, are, are uh, more complex than, than, than just the one thing. You, know?
0: um, you spend a lot of time in secondhand bookshops. Do I have that right?
1: That's true. I just went to one today, Bison Books in Winnipeg.
0: What did you buy?
1: I got a William Trevor book called uh, The Love department, and I got a Muriel Spark book called Public Image. But wow. these, neither of these books is particularly hard to find, but they're old hardcover editions that yeah. were quite cheap. So that's what I'm looking for these days. You
0: would love Backlisted. You have to listen to Backlisted.
1: Okay. Backlisted. All right. I'll
0: make it. Um, are you, I, this is a boring question, but are you working on your next book already or what?
1: I am. I have, a, I, I worked, once I finished The Librarianist, I, I picked up um, just working on a TV show. For no money. I haven't really shown it to any producers or anything like that. Oh, it's like of your own that. bat.
0: Nobody commissioned you to do one. Nope. No. What's that I about? Just, I want,
1: it's about a, a crime spree, is the shortest possible way to put it. But it's also about a mentor relationship between an older criminal and a young up and coming criminal uh, that goes poorly. And it's about island life. It's these two criminals sort of abscond from the U.S. Hmm. after uh, something ha- happens that. It behooves them to leave the country, and they go to one of the southernmost islands on the west coast of Canada. And they're meant to be hiding out, but they recognize almost at once that the criminal potential of the island is is too good to be true. So they embark on a crime crime scene. Um, So is it dark or funny or both? All those things. It's it's in keeping with, I would say, of all the books probably most like The Sisters Brothers and that there is graphic violence, but that the violence is meant to be somewhat chilling, but also sort of humorous in some sickening way, you know, there's a strike on here for the writer's guild of which Uh I'm a member. So I put that on hold and now I am writing a book, uh, a novel about um, a draft dodger, somebody who in the sixties gets his draft notice for the Vietnam war and decides to leave the country. But the book is a story of him attempting to leave a country. He doesn't want to leave. And what's the cost of um, abandoning one's country and at what point, must you do it and how much can you take before you leave kind of a question so the two things once the once the um strike is lifted we'll see what what happens with the tv show i've got quite a few i think five or six episodes done of that hour-long episodes so there's a good bit ready to share when it comes time to share with whomever cares to you
0: are them. remarkably forthcoming i mean most writers say oh i am writing another novel but i just i don't want to talk about it right now thank you it's too soon
1: yeah, I mean, I have I have spoken of things that wound up not working, and then I abandoned them, and then the question is, what happened to that book? Yeah, We're what happened? <laughs> but, the, you know, I don't know. I think it's, I like, I prefer when the authors are, are are forthcoming, and I don't see the, I don't believe in the jinx or any of those sorts of things. There's um, a book, or a movie rather, called The Triangle of Sadness, that oh, Yes, out, which I liked so much, and there was an interview with that director whose name I can't remember, but I think he's finished, brilliant man. And he gave the whole plot away, including the ending in an interview. And the interviewer was sort of encouraging him to stop. And he said, it just doesn't matter. Even if you know going in, it's not going to be the way you imagined it in your mind. And he had confidence in his work to surprise, even if he gave the plot away, which I, I don't necessarily want to go that far with my own discussions, but I did admire him for for not being precious about it. You no, know, I think that's nice. quite
0: right. If If a work cannot withstand a spoiler then it's yeah. not worth much, I reckon.
1: I think you're right. I think that's the truth. Excellent to talk to you, Patrick. Uh, excellent to be talked to. Thank you so much for having me.
0: That's Patrick DeWitt. We were talking about his latest book, The Librarianist. Yes, Gin, Ginger and Lime is apparently called a gin mule. Just for your information.